Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. La santé est Health is everything. Hi, I'm Dr. Charles Raison. I'm a psychiatrist and research scientist, and you're listening to Health is Everything, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. My guest today is Dr. Donald Noble, who's a faculty member in the Center for the Study of Human Health. Dr. Noble is famous in my world for his very novel study that trained rats to breathe slowly the way humans do when they meditate. Based on this study and his other trailblazing work on the physiology of meditation, Dr. Noble shares his in-depth knowledge of how modulating breathing could be an effective tool for reducing stress and enhancing well-being. Like me, I think this podcast will leave you amazed at the power of one of the simplest things we do all the time just to stay alive, breathing. Great to be talking with you. Uh, you're, you've studied something that utterly fascinates me, and more so as I age, which is the simple power of breathing. So why do you think breathing is such a fundamental or so fundamental to meditation practice? I think the first thing about breathing is that in complete honesty, people are usually pretty bored by it. So if you if you mention breathing to, to someone, they'll say, oh, yeah, of course, if you breathe if you change how you breathe, if you breathe more slowly or deeply, of course, we say that we'll generally feel more relaxed. But there's a few things I think that to me are really interesting about it. And one is that, uh, you know, science, we don't know scientifically why that is necessarily. But furthermore, by knowing why that is, we might actually be able to kind of hone the craft a little bit to be able to train specific types of breathing that maybe are the most beneficial. I think the most simple reason why slow and deep breathing or just breathing in general uh, is used as part of meditation practices is that it gives you something to focus on. Uh, there, I mean, what else are you doing every second of the day that can draw your attention at any moment other than thinking probably? And so by giving you something to focus on, the whole point is that you can take your attention away from thinking. If you focus on your breathing, it will generally naturally slow a little bit as well. Um, and it's and that's the thing about it. they there have been people that have measured breathing just during these different meditation practices without overtly saying to anyone, you know, intentionally slow your breathing. And generally what is found is that breathing will also tend to slow down naturally even if you're not giving the explicit instruction to do so. Physiologically, slowing down your breathing has shown to have benefits. The slower you're breathing, the more spaces you have. You know, you have greater spaces between breaths. Um, it's, it kind of mimics the spaces between thoughts, and I think it kind of helps slow the mind down. You know, it, it creates a kind of a space of stillness. Um, it's generally easier to watch your thoughts if you're calm uh, and as another thing we'll talk about, if your attention is, you know, wrapped, if you're focused on things, but also calm, that seems to almost put you in this ideal uh, substratum almost where any other practice you layer on top of that is enhanced in its ability to train that practice. So you can become, you can train yourself to be more compassionate, uh, more mindful. And one of the reasons for that is that breathing in certain ways has actually been shown to enhance your learning. And so you're basically allowing any kind of training technique to have an increased effectiveness just by virtue of how you are uh, breathing physiologically. One of the things that 
I, I think scientifically is really interesting is that depending on where you are in the breath cycle, you theoretically would have slightly different cognitive sensations, different feelings, um, and possibly more or less inclination to be kind of caught up in the stream of thought. Crazy thing is there's just some, some really recent research that suggests that inhalation is more, is related to better memory calls, slightly better performance on certain cognitive tasks, but perhaps is also more, uh, more involved with this kind of immediate um, attentional activation. And generally, if you ask people subjectively when during a breath they feel more relaxed, most people will say it's the exhalation. There is some variation in that, but it's interesting that within a breath, you almost have the, you know, that contrast between the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. What is there to learn, uh, you know, about it that we don't already know or can't tell from our own experience that we haven't touched upon, you know, in what we've said so far? What I think um, from my graduate studies and then, then onwards, the part that was most interesting to me was this idea that everybody... You know, everybody looks at breathing and especially slow and deep breathing and says things, you know, like, oh, yeah, if you breathe that way, you're going to be more relaxed. So it's, it's good for you. You'll be relaxed. So you'll be less stressed. And that's wonderful. And that does seem to be true. Um, and it does seem to be helpful. But I think the, the part that's just recently being more recognized is that there's this profound sympathetic component, too. So you're activating systems that are involved in arousal, in attention. And you're doing it in a way that maybe it's not that you're activating one or the other. You're not necessarily just activating attention or just activating relaxation, but it's kind of the balance between them as you breathe that makes your system more adaptable and more resilient, more able to respond to stressors in your environment. So breathing controls how fast your heart rate is. That's kind of the most basic perspective is if you're breathing slower, you, you probably are aware that generally your heart rate will be slower. And so that, that goes back to the relaxation response is you're causing this net decrease in your heart rate, net decrease in your blood pressure. But what I think is underappreciated is that beyond that net decreases, you're actually having changes in your heart rate over time that are actually therapeutic in themselves. So how fast your heart beats when you're breathing in compared to how, how much it slows down when you're breathing out, that's known as heart rate variability. And the reason that has any kind of significance is that that signal is one of the best predictors of, of wellness. Low heart rate variability um, is corresponds to depression, anxiety, uh, panic disorders. Uh, high heart rate variability has been observed in physical activity. It's physically active uh, postmenopausal women have higher heart rate variability. Uh, it's generally a really clear index that you have higher well-being and it's improved by practices that improve your well-being. And so that's not only is that a physiological signal, it is now, and we may get into this more, but it is now actually the basis of a number of um, biofeedback techniques. So there, there are instruments you can put on you and they will measure from your pulsatile signals what your heart rate variability is and you will try to tailor it to receive some sort of visual reward or basically some signal that you're doing a good job. And that is actually intended to guide you towards a more kind of healthy physiology. And then you can control that based on your breathing. One of the really fascinating things you did that, that you're sort of famous for is you actually developed an animal model of slow, deep breathing. Um, you know, how and why did you make rats meditate? 
<laughs> so just just saying that you know if if people you know it's just meditating rats is just a fascinating idea so talk about that some what we did is we we had these rats and we we exposed them to a strobe light and so every single time that it records their breathing being slower than some threshold that we set the light turns off and so they sit over time which ended up being quite a bit of time on the order of a few dozen hours um, but they, they start to learn more quickly than that uh, they begin to slow their breathing more reliably um, and so what you what you see after um, you know 20 sessions of this is they will slow their breathing by about 11, 11 breaths per minute, I think, which is fairly substantial. So if you think generally our average uh, breathing rate is about 12 breaths per minute. Uh, it's a quite a bit more than that in animals, but still 11 breaths per minute is fairly substantial. Um, and so what we did as part of these studies was we did all this and then we ran these typical behavioral tests you can do in an animal, like tests of stress, tests of depression-like behaviors. Um, really the only ones that we that we use in this study, because keep in mind, this was a, uh, it, it was kind of a challenge just even to get to get any kind of funding for these studies whatsoever. And so we didn't have the flexibility to run 100 behavioral tests, but the ones we did were pretty convincing and and made us really think that there was something to it. I, I kind of learned some of these sort of tantric, just sort of theories, the you know, thousand year old theories. And, and one of them is that there's a series of of very basic physiologic um, experiences that that are they consider to be sort of closest to the mind of a Buddha, um, and you know they're they're I, they're they're kind of hilarious. Given you know if we think we think of enlightenment as this sort of you know kind of maybe elevated grandiose thing, but there there there's thirteen states, and they include defecating, urinating, orgasm, sneezing, vomiting. Oh, you know the fascinating thing about all these states is that they like breathing, they disrupt the stream of consciousness, right? You know, I just stay conscious through orgasm or even a sneeze, right? And if you, if you, if you can watch your mind, you'll see that it's, it's not really possible. There's a, a disjunction that happens. So I, I've, I've had this long-term interest in this idea that the rapid oscillation of sympathetic parasympathetic activity, that, it, that it, it, it offers some sort of not fully understood opportunities for the manipulation of mental experience, basically, right? So uh, what you're talking about just fits so perfectly with that, that it's it's really fascinating. I'll have to send you a slide with the 13 natural states, but they, they're all like that. And I realized, uh, you know, from the Tibetan position, they don't see it this way, but, but, you know, from the sort of Western physiologic perspective, this is what they all share in common. They all are activities that require oscillations of, of sympathetic parasympathetic activity. The other thing is there's not really a ton of a ton of science research on it at this point when it comes to interfacing with slow and, and deep breathing. But what there is is really cool. And there is recently this this whole phenomenon of uh, like functional music, music that serves a purpose. And it you can you can make it in order to kind of craft some sort of uh, like mental state or a certain output that you're targeting. There's an article and a corresponding song that was designed specifically to entrain a brain state that corresponds to these oscillatory properties we are talking about. So it attempts to induce this kind of relaxation state. And it there's a there there's an article that discusses how it actually made people uh, who were driving concerned because they worried they might be too too relaxed while they were driving. So they actually put out a warning related to it. Um, but that that's one example. And then there's actually some recent scientific papers that 
get a bit at this idea of like binaural beats. So if you have if you have different auditory frequencies that are projected into each ear, the difference between those frequencies is a way that you can actually entrain your your brain to certain reach certain states that are based on uh, on the properties uh, of the difference between those signals. Uh, again, this this is kind of getting at a point where I, I probably shouldn't say too much because I don't think it's really well validated, accepted science yet at this point. But it's really cool in the fact that you know breathing is a sensory stimulus. And so there's nothing magic about it in that sense. Anything else that's a sensory stimulus that engages those same pathways, there's no reason why that shouldn't also, you know, induce a similar state. Uh, and so if the goal, if, if the ultimate therapeutic output is to, you know, increase your, your heartbeat during inhalation, decrease during exhalation, or then the, the brain corollary of that is slow wave oscillation. So we haven't, we haven't talked about that yet, but there the idea like when you sleep, you're probably familiar with the idea you have these slow wave oscillations that tend to be related to memory consolidation. Uh, they tend to be associated with improvements in restfulness with the quality of your sleep. The more of these that you have, those are almost synonymous with the effects of what breathing seems to do. So it creates a state. The reason that you're not you know, asleep when you're breathing slowly and deeply and why I mentioned that you're probably more alert is because you're activating different parts of the brain. You're activating parts that are more involved probably in attentional functions. So that's why you're not breathing slowly and just falling asleep every time you do it. And that's why I say there's this heavy sympathetic component as well. Uh, but the idea here behind music, or I think any of these kind of sensory approaches that, that play along with this class a bit, is that you know if you engage these signals, it really doesn't matter how you do it. And there's a number of ways you can do it. You're basically entraining the, you know, the same global phenomenon. And that's why I think that's why breathing ultimately is so powerful to me is that it's a, a very simple behavior that really complexly changes multiple brain systems uh, for more optimal functioning. Is there anything, do, do we think that there's anything unique about, about the sort of location of that, that oscillatory activity or do you think that 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 it is just the oscillatory activity that however induced it's this sort of higher level you know kind of cerebral oscillatory activity that's doing the deed if if, if i can say it that way yeah i think that's a really good question and uh, even when it comes to to just to start off with i think even when it comes to breathing it's not entirely the lungs and these afferents it's there just recently there's more literature even on olfactory afferents so if you're looking at 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 um at neurons in an, an animal, more typically with breathing, you will get signals from those in your nose and the animal's nose because these animals are obligatory nose breathers. They breathe through their nose primarily. And so I don't think that just, just within breathing, there's different pathways uh, to, to the same summit. But then when you look at something like uh, auditory function, presumably you'd be getting the signal obviously through your auditory pathways. Whether that changes what happens downstream, I don't know for sure that it's it's possible to say. It probably does have a very a unique composition, but the thing is that a lot of these kind of association areas, they integrate pretty well with each other mm -hmm. once you get up higher. And so I I don't know for sure that that I have a good answer for that, but my guess, my guess would be that probably a lot of the same kind of higher level association areas probably probably experience very much the same signaling so when people go into deep sleep they get these sort of delta you know big delta waves that that are very very 
consistent, right? I mean, they, they, they're not jagged up, down. Right. Type of, I, I didn't realize this. So that's a sort of brain-activated oscillatory effect. That yeah, so that seemed, that's a good parallel to the question you asked because that's an oscillation that is very similar to the breathing-induced oscillation. It's a slow cortical oscillation, which is exactly what you have when you're breathing slowly. You get a slow cortical oscillation, but they're actually... That another, that's a good example of what you're asking about because there actually seems to be a difference between your sleep slow wave oscillation and your kind of induced oscillation. There's actually this intrinsic oscillation that corresponds more to when you're sleeping. And probably the reason that it you have it when you're sleeping and not when you're awake is probably exactly what you say. It probably activates a slightly different profile of brain regions. It probably doesn't go to certain brain regions. Um, and so that would probably explain why you have that delta change during sleep, um, but you have a slightly different and maybe more functional uh, delta change during wakefulness. During wakefulness. Yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, hopefully everybody um, is nerding out with us. And yeah, I mean, I want to talk about something that's just, you know, garden variety, you know, like you said, like we said in the beginning, you know, like boring, no big deal. And damn, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just fascinating. The one, the one thing I have, uh, written down here. I had a quote that I thought explained it better than I could phrase it, which is because I'm not a hundred percent, I'm not an expert on the, the polyvagal theory, even if it's a really kind of romantic concept, but this idea from, I think this is from one of his uh, kind of seminal papers that phylogenetically more recent systems not only provide mechanisms for social communication, but also are involved in regulating visceral organs to promote calm states. Thus, the polyvagal theory provides a neurobiological model to explain how positive social behavior, social support, and positive affective states might support health and growth. Um, I just thought that was a better line than, than I'd be able to summarize mm-hmm. it because to me that brought up for, for the first time this idea that, you know, it makes sense that we would develop this parasympathetic deep breathing related circuitry in line with the development of our social capacities because maybe one was able to support the other, you know, maybe they both helped us, maybe they both helped us grow, but maybe at this, you know, we, you were talking a few weeks ago about pro-social development. So maybe when we, I guess, had the luxury or the the impetus to become more pro-social that kind of fell in line with a reduction in the need to activate these emergency systems, you know, this purely sympathetic drive. And so, In in a way that kind of all ties together. And I mean, I, to me, the romantic part, I think of anything like this is being able to integrate it, you know, to say how it ties together. And I think that it's a beautiful idea that maybe this, the benefits of breathing are tied to our development as social creatures. I just, I I was watching this thing that that this is called daily, a daily dose of internet, which is these fascinating little snippets of the best internet. And it showed a, it showed a, um, I think it was a possum playing dead while it was being kind of messed with by a, a, by a um, mountain lion. And the mountain lion would roll it over and it would put it, the, the possum's head in its mouth. But you know, that mountain lions don't eat carrion. They don't eat, you know, they don't like to eat dead things. And so the mountain lion just left it be. And then after a little while, the, the, the possum got up and kind of walked off. Right. But one of the things that Steve Porter says is, you know, sometimes these, these, when this, when this death feigning type of, of, sort of ancient unmyelinated vagal activity gets activated, the animal will die. The heart will stop. 
it, it, it actually is that, you know, kind of, it puts a total, basically it sets up a kind of a heart block. Right. And then, so then up the chain so that, so that, you know, in, in, this is what, this is what vertebrates do in, um, in the, the most dire of circumstances. Whereas humans and, and, you know, primates, they develop this, they, they kind of reach the apogee of this ability to actually have protracted periods when they can tolerate being closely in each other's presence. You know, lizards will only generally kind of be in each other's presence to quickly mate. And a lot of mammals, that's also sort of the same thing, you know, lots of, of species. So how do you spend your entire life together like humans with these amazingly pro-social species or most of the primates, you know? And the answer is that this sort of myelinated vagus is this more phylogenetically recent vagus you know, it does a lot of things. It slows the heart, enhances digestion. It's necessary for parts of the sexual act, but that it allows us to be in relationship and be able to tolerate, you know, physical proximity. And one of my favorite things about what Steve Porges talks about is that that the myelinated vagus also modulates the the three ears, uh, you know, the the stapes and the, the 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 three inner ear bones, which are absolutely you know unique to mammals. Right? That's one of the classic, you know, hair, milk, and the the three ear bones. And when the myelinated, when vagal tone kicks in, when, when heart rate variability that you were talking about goes up, that the bones relax to a place that they get maximally tuned to the frequency of human speech. And on the other hand, when the sympathetics are activated and you, you know, in a fight or flight mode, you lose this sort of narrow bandwave. And so what you get is much less definition of what you're hearing, but a much, much wider range. And if you know if you ever had ringing in, or like a roaring in your ears, or when you're under huge stress or really frightened, this is the, this is sort of the argument for that. That essentially, your sympathetics kick in, your your bones tighten up, and you you lose that ability to focus on the the sort of bandwidth of human speech. Of uh, you, you lose that social bandwidth, you get this much wider bandwidth. But it, you know, you get to sort of roaring, which is why when you're really stressed out, it's really hard to pay attention to what people are saying. In part because you know you've you've lost this sort of myelinated vagal support of prosocial physiology. And, you know, you're looking everywhere because you don't know where the danger is going to jump out at you. So I agree. I mean, I, this polyvagal thing, is, it's such a beautiful organizing principle for so much of what we've been talking about. I wonder, too, if you were to play your music, your, you know, binaural beats or whatever, I wonder if it would have an effect on the bones. You could do a test and see if people become more, more pro-social afterwards or something like that. I know. That's, I know. That's interesting. Yeah, I know it's, really uh, part of the calm study you did that i i had, i'll be honest i had forgotten that you did that that part where you recorded people's speech to see if they used words that were more i guess social was it or yeah they, um, yeah we did what would really be interesting would be to put people through a breathing uh, exercise or a or a binaural beat exercise and look for an acute effect right because yeah. you're more likely to see it and then you could from that you could argue that that with repeated practice you know if that expanded out the idea of can you get it off the meditation cushion into your life yeah. but if you can sit on a meditation cushion at least you can say well look you know it's it's happening i mean that'd be really really yeah. interesting study yeah and nobody wants to be told that they have to meditate 30 minutes a day for a month in order you know it's acute effects are nice because they're they're more practical for most people day to yes. day you know whether yes. or not whether or not we feel that you know it would be a a good thing personally I, I mean i i derive quite a bit of benefit from you know just daily 15 20 minute sessions but it's it's hard to you know everyone kind of wants a quick fix well let's say that we really you know i mean like you got me all fired up to go and try to manipulate my breathing what what <laughs> sort of uh technologies 
do we know about that we might be able to to explore? Yeah, so the I mean the ones that have been harnessed probably most recently are these technologies that take advantage of the the heart rate variability idea. So if the you know if one of the therapeutic outputs associated with your breathing is the variability in your heart rate, then it makes sense to target that as an output that you can actually control to improve your well-being. Uh, you know, there's apps that are you can get on your phone. There's this one that we did, um, and so you put your your phone on your abdomen. I'm kind of mimicking it as I say it, but and you breathe. You can feel breathing in, breathing out, and your phone reflects that waveform. And this is a cool idea because I think this app it plays songs or music that reflect how well you're doing. So the tone will change and tell you when to inhale or exhale. There's some apps that actually maybe play a different tone depending on how well you're following the instructions. I think UCLA and Apple partnered for a study where they're, it's basically this idea that uh, the quantified self. So if you look it up, it's this idea that you're measuring yourself, all your different physiological parameters in real time at once. It gives you kind of this profile uh, of yourself, hopefully not just for, you know, big brother to look at, but that you can actually take in and you can see how your physiology is responding in real time uh, to your different yeah. situations in life. Uh, and it's really cool because it's like building a profile of yourself that you can use to better understand what helps you, what hurts you. You know, our, our, little, our little surveys and interventions are a really kind of rudimentary attempt to get at something like that, that we hope we can build on in the future. Um, but it's this idea that these wearable technologies, in some cases, smart technologies. So there's ideas about like putting lights in your house that can oscillate at frequencies that vibrate with your physiology, putting lights that give you better or more aversive cues, depending on what you're doing to give you signals. When it comes to breathing, when it comes to kind of calming your physiology, I think these might be the kind of immediate future that would be part of like a human computer, you know, hybrid or some uh, kind of future evolutionary based entity. Those, those sort of feedback things are, I think, are especially, they can be especially useful. Okay, Don, thank you, man. That was really good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Health is Everything. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, or rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at CSHH or at Exploring Health on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Dr. Charles Raison, wishing you the best of health until we meet again. Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Health is everything.